like for us to open this morning to the book of Jude. Second to last book of the Bible, book of Jude. Verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we look to you now for this part of our time together, and Lord, we bring ourselves before you and ask that you would have something for each of us this morning. Lord, I think of of how every single one of us here, whether we're Christians or not, whether we're old or young, every one of us here has needs that only you can meet. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you right now and, and ask that you would speak through your word, that you would take these loaves and multiply them and feed your people. Save your people, Lord, bring us on with you. Father, we thank you this morning that your grace is sufficient for us and that power is perfected in weakness. Lord, help us to humble ourselves this morning and to sit at your feet and to learn from you. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we go too far here, I want to mention uh, some different translations uh, for this verse, especially here in verse 1. For example, in the ESV, it says this, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So similar here to the NASB, which I read at the beginning. King James has, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. The NIV, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And then here's one that I really like, but it's kind of more of a paraphrase. This is the New English translation. To those who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And now I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but from what I can tell just by looking at different things, the NASB is as, as good as anything here, so that's what I'm going to stick with this morning. But I do want you to realize that some other translations take this a little bit differently. Some say beloved by God the Father. Some say beloved in God the Father. Some say kept for Jesus Christ. Some say kept by Jesus Christ. Uh, But what I'm going to stick with this morning is the NASB. To those who are the called, beloved in or by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to share some thoughts with you this morning 
on these three descriptions of a Christian, called, beloved, kept. Now, there are many titles or names given to Christians throughout the New Testament. For example, every Christian is called a saint. Every Christian is called a holy one. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, the moment you become a Christian, you are called saint, a holy one. Christians are called brethren, brothers and sisters. That's another title that's given to believers. Christians are also called children of God. In 1 John 3, John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. But here at the very beginning of the book of Jude, Jude packs in three, of, well, three wonderful titles for the Christian, packs them into one verse here. I mean, think what a way to open a letter. You're writing a letter to somebody. And Jude says, Christians here are those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So someone comes up to you and asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You could say it means to be called. It means to be beloved. It means to be kept for Jesus Christ. Amazing statements here. Now Jude might not know much about these Christians that he's writing to. And a lot of times some of the, the apostles didn't know a whole lot about the churches they were writing to. But yet he can say these things are true for every believer that's here that he's writing to. Because these things are true of every Christian. And these things are true of every Christian here this morning. Every believer is called, beloved, and kept. And so what I want to do this morning, we could spend months on each of these. But I just want to take a little bite out of each of them uh, to, for our encouragement here this morning. So first of all, Christians are the called. Jude says, to those who are the called. In Romans 1.6, Paul says this, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, it was covered. It means to be kept. Called you through our gospel. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, in order to understand this thing of calling, we have to set it against the backdrop of God's election and man's sinfulness. In order to do that, let's turn to uh, Ephesians 1. We're talking about being called here. We're talking about Christians as the called, but we can't understand calling until we understand a couple of other things first. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Paul is talking about the blessings that are ours in Christ. In verse 4 he says, Just as He, that's God the Father, just as He chose us in Him, that's Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So before the foundation of the world, God set His love upon a vast multitude of people to be His possession. And in the book of Revelation it says that this is a great multitude which no man could count. And so before the foundations of the world, God sets His love upon this great multitude of people. But here's the problem. These same people, this great multitude of people, these same people here come into this world, are born into this world as enemies of God and as children of wrath. Flip over to Ephesians 2. Paul talks about this here in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. 
Now listen to this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is a description of you. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too. So Paul's including himself here. He's saying this was true of me too before I was a Christian. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So here's that phrase, children of wrath. God sets his love upon a multitude of people from the foundations of the world, but those same people that he set his love upon come into the world as children of wrath. There's the problem. David says this in the Old Testament, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. A little bit later, Psalm 58.3, David says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. And then in Titus 3, Paul says this, another description of the lost person. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And not only hating one another, but Paul says in Romans 1.30 that every lost person is a hater of God. He says the NIV just says God-hater. Amazing. Now these are some, some heavy verses here, but we need to be reminded of these in order to see what's at stake when we talk about being called. God has set His love upon this multitude of people, and yet these same people come into the world. They're born into the world enslaved to sin. They're brought forth in iniquity, as David said. They go astray from the, from the womb, from birth. They're disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and they're haters of God. So here's the situation. Here's God, and here's these sinful people. How in the world can they ever come together? How in the world can these haters of God ever come to God? How will they ever come to God when they hate Him? There's the problem. How can they be reconciled? And the answer here is by calling. And let's turn to Romans 8 to see this. How does a God-hater become a God-lover? The answer is the call of God by calling. Romans 8, verse 28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. There's the word this morning, called. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also did what? He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice here that this call that we're talking about is effectual. It's unstoppable. And you see that by the terms that Paul uses, those and these. He's talking about the same group of people all throughout these verses. Go back to verse 28. He says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, 
verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. See, he's got the same group of people in mind all through here. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Jump down to verse 30. And these whom he predestined, same group of people, those and these, all throughout here, same group of people, these whom he predestined, he did what? He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Those, those and these all throughout here tells us that Paul's thinking of the same group of people all throughout, the same group of people that God has chosen from the foundations of the world. And so this calling that we're speaking of this morning is certain to succeed. It's certain to succeed because it's part of the predestinating plan of God. In other words, this call here that Paul's referring to is not just an invitation. It's a summons to come. Think of Christ there before the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, he's not just giving Lazarus an invitation to come forth. He's commanding him. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And you can be sure that Lazarus was going to come forth. It's not just an invitation. It was a summons, a command. And so God calls these children of wrath that we talked about before, and as He calls them, they actually become children of God. But not only is this call effectual, powerful, and certain, it is also an individual and personal call. Paul said, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. He's talking about Himself as an individual. He called me through His grace. And you remember the story Paul's traveling along with a group of companions there on his way to Damascus, and suddenly he sees a light, it says, from heaven that's brighter than the sun. And then what? He hears a voice calling his name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there were other men with Saul that day. They didn't hear their name being called. Only Saul heard his name being called. We see the same thing in the reality, this same reality in the life of Moses and in Samuel's life, too. Here's Moses. He's out pasturing a flock for his father-in-law, Jethro. And he turns aside and he sees this bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being burned up. And then it says this in Exodus 3, 4. It says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Again, what does Moses hear? He hears his name being called. He hears his name. Here's Samuel lying in bed at night, and he hears someone calling his name. And three times the Lord calls to him, and each time Samuel thinks it's his master Eli calling. He doesn't realize it's the Lord. It says at that time that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So his hearing was a little dull here. And so finally, the, Eli is wise enough to figure out this is something's going on here. This is supernatural. God's doing something. And so he tells Samuel to go back to bed one more time, and Samuel lies down, and the Scriptures say this, Then the Lord came and stood. That's pretty incredible. The Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Each time here there's this repetition of the name, Saul, Saul. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. Each time there's that repetition. And the same thing happens, spiritually speaking, the exact same thing happens in the life of every one of God's chosen people. This individual, personal call of God. Here's a gal sitting in a meeting, listening to the sermon, no big deal, waiting to go home, and all of a sudden she hears somebody calling her name. 
and nothing's ever the same again. You give a track to a college student, that college student takes that track back to his dorm room, starts reading that track, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts hearing his name being called. It's possible for 3,000 to be saved in a single day, as in Acts chapter 2, but even when 3,000 are saved at one time, each of those people hears their name being called individually. It's always an individual call. It's always a personal call. It's an intimate call. Listen to Hosea 2.14, wonderful verse. God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. It's like God takes you and He gets you away from everybody else. He takes you out into the wilderness where nobody else is, and He starts speaking kindly to you. Literally, He says, I will speak upon her heart. I will speak upon her heart. Again, this idea of God personally, individually calling each and every one of His chosen people. He takes you into the wilderness and He speaks upon your heart. But what else about this call? It's also a call into a relationship with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at that in 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians one nine. Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, called into fellowship with his son. Every Christian knows and has fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You might not know anything else about this person as a Christian, but you know that that they have fellowship, they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's something they're called into. You see, it happens automatically. When God calls a person, He calls them into fellowship with His Son. They're ushered into that relationship. Jesus said in John 17, 3, He said, The essence of eternal life was to know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom He had sent. That knowing that Jesus talks about there begins with this call of God at the beginning of the Christian life. Also, this is a privileged call. Ephesians 4, verse 1. It's a privileged call that every Christian has received. Ephesians 4, 1. Again, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In 1 Thessalonians 1.12, Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So we as believers are exhorted not only to walk worthy of our calling, but also to walk worthy of the God who calls us. You see, there's both ideas there. And what, what greater privilege can there be than to be called of God? What greater privilege can there be? And it's no wonder that Paul says you need to walk worthy of your calling because there's nothing greater that can happen to a person than to be called in this way. You know, it's a big thing. A lot of times when a sports team wins a championship or something, you know, the president will give them a call, and and that's a a big deal, the president's calling, you know. Uh, But I'd much, much rather receive this call. You talk about receiving a call from the president. What about receiving a call from the God of the universe calling your name personally? individually a privileged calling 
And then lastly, on this thing of calling, I want to point out that this call of God comes through the gospel. It comes through the gospel. And this is incredible and very important. 2 Thessalonians 2. We read it earlier, but let's turn to it this time. 2 Thessalonians 2. In verse 14. Actually, let's go back to verse 13 here. We don't want to miss this. Verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. There's election again. Chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this... He called you, there's calling, He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you through our gospel. Now, up until this point, you might be tempted to think that if God is the one who calls and He does it, then there's not much point in sharing the gospel with people, right? I mean, if God's going to call them, He's going to call them. But it's just the opposite. The reality is just the opposite. Sharing the gospel is absolutely necessary because Paul says here that it's through the gospel that God calls people to himself. You see that? It's through the gospel that he does this. He tells these same Thessalonian Christians in a different place, he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full Conviction. In other words, what was happening here? Paul's preaching the gospel and God's calling people at the same time as he's preaching. He tells these Thessalonians that it was through the speaking of words, through the preaching of the gospel that God called them to himself. Now what an encouragement this should be for us to share the gospel with other people, knowing that God can actually, as you're speaking words to somebody, as you're speaking words about the gospel, about Christ, as you're speaking, God comes alongside and He speaks. And He calls someone to Himself. And this is so helpful to me. I mean, God is not limited by our ability to share with people. He's not limited by our ability to, you know, to give some kind of wonderful gospel presentation or whatever you want to say. He's not limited by that. And He can use almost anything. Uh, what do I mean? Well, you know, again, a lot of times we have this idea that we have to somehow sit somebody down for three hours and walk them through the whole Bible and give this big, big elaborate presentation of what the gospel is. I mean, it's great if you can do that, but you can't always do that. Uh, and God, I mean, just sharing a verse with somebody, you know, just sharing a verse can save a soul. God can speak through that, can speak through just a verse even. Uh, I was When I was down there in Sedalia last weekend, Bob Jennings took me out into the countryside and showed me some of the some of the houses there, different people that that he knew. And we drove past the the Rages's old house where the church there actually started in Sedalia. And they don't own that anymore; they've moved. But there was a guy, the current owner of that house, was out front planning. And Bob stopped there and was just talking to him a little bit. And Bob says, "Well, are you a Christian?" And uh, he says, no, no, I'm not a Christian. Bob says, well, why not? Why not become a Christian? Christ is worthy. And then we drove off. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, I thought of that later on. I mean, that who knows what happened to that guy? Just saying to someone, Christ is worthy, can be enough for God to speak through that and to call somebody to himself. That's what I'm talking about here. It's not like you have to give this big elaborate thing. And a lot of times we get so bound up by that, we feel inadequate. You know, what if somebody asks this? What if they ask, I don't have answers for that, you know, et cetera. Just tell them Christ is worthy. Tell them something, you know. God's not limited by that. He can speak through your words, no matter how feeble they are. He can speak through that and call someone to himself. So, Christians are the called. To those who are the called, Jude says. Next, Jude says here, Christians are beloved in or beloved by God the Father. So, Christians are called. The next, Christians are beloved. And what a wonderful title for the Christian to wear. What a wonderful title for you to wear this morning if you are a Christian. You came in this morning as a beloved. You walked in the door as a beloved this morning. Not only beloved to other Christians, but beloved to God Himself. Uh, Again, Paul addresses his letter to the Romans by saying this, To all who are beloved of God in Rome. You see, there was a lot of people in Rome. But there was this certain group of people that were beloved of God in Rome. It's the same thing here in Kirksville. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says, Knowing brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Notice how election and love go hand in hand. Knowing brethren, beloved of God, His choice of you. Beloved and choice. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we just read this a minute ago, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And notice in all of these verses here, that it's, and even back there in Jude, it's specifically the love of God the Father that is being talked about here in these verses. Specifically the love of God the Father. This is a love that began in eternity past, according to Ephesians 1. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. And it goes all the way into eternity future. You know, we sing that hymn, It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song, the love of God. It's a love that was specifically demonstrated by God in history through the giving of His Son. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, at a time in history, there came a time when God was going to demonstrate His love in the greatest way that He ever could have demonstrated it. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that's made manifest every time someone is converted. Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. It's an unconditional love. It's shown by God to those who are His enemies, it says. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Not only did we not meet any conditions to be loved, we were the exact opposite of what the conditions demanded. We were running in the opposite direction. We weren't even trying to meet the conditions. We were headed the other way. It's not a cold, formal, detached kind of love but is a love full of warmth and feeling and emotion. Zephaniah 3.17, He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. 
It's a jealous love. God will not share you with the world. He will not share you with sin. He will not share you with the devil. He's determined to have you for Himself. He says, I will be their God and they shall be My people. It's a jealous love. He will not share His people with anyone. And it's a persevering kind of love. It holds on to us. Holds on to you through the trials, through the temptations, through the storms of this life. And one of my favorite hymns, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. It will not let you go. You try to get away from it. Try to run away from that love. It won't let you go. It'll track you down and hunt you down and tackle you and bring you back. It won't let you go. Now I say to you this morning that people in the world are yearning for a love like this. People are starved for a love like this. And they're doing all kinds of foolish and sinful things to try to fill the void because they don't have this kind of a love. But this kind of love can only be found in God Himself. You know, I, I think of John Beorley here a few weeks back giving his testimony. And you remember what it was that, that God used to slay him. It was that little children's song. And it was that phrase from that children's song, God is love. God is love. That's what came home to him. God is love. And he, the first thing he wanted to know is, can God really love me? Can God really love me? That was the question for him. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are beloved by God the Father. And this is incredible. You wear a title that belonged to Christ Himself. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Let me just read this to you. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Talking about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He bestowed all of these blessings on us in the Beloved. And you'll remember there at the baptism of Jesus, that a voice came out of heaven and said, This is My Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Or you could also translate it, This is My Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And then later, Christ takes a few disciples with Him up on a mountainside and He's transfigured before them. And a voice comes out of heaven and says, This is My, what? Beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is My beloved Son. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? I mean, that's great. You know, we know that Christ was God's beloved Son. That, of course, He was the Beloved. He was God's only begotten, unique Son. What does that have to do with me? And the answer to that question is found in John 17. What does the fact that Christ is the Beloved have to do with you? It has everything to do with you. John 17, verse 25. Jesus is praying here, His longest recorded prayer that we have. And he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these, talking about his disciples, these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. Now notice this. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
Did you catch that? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What is Jesus asking here? He's saying to his father, <laughs> he's saying to his father, make my disciples beloved in the same way that I'm beloved. That's what he's praying. You see that? I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. That's what he's saying here. Make them beloved in the same way that I'm beloved. Love them with the same love with which you love me. And this is fulfilled in the life of every believer. I liked the way Spurgeon said this, and I was thankful that he had a sermon on this verse. You know, when you come to a passage like this, and it's like, what can you say about it? And it's like, well, what did Spurgeon say about it? I mean, if, if anybody could say anything about it, Spurgeon could say something about it. Uh, and this is what he said. It's kind of a longer quote, but it's so good. He says, The love of the Father towards Jesus springs up like a crystal fountain, and then the sparkling drops fall and overflow. And we are the cups into which this overflowing love of God towards Jesus Christ flows. And it flows till we too are full. The inward love so much desired for us by our Lord is no emotion of nature, no attachment proceeding from the unregenerate will. In other words, it's not something we just work up, this love. It is the Father's love transplanted into the soul of these poor hearts. Remember that you are to have in your heart a sense of the Father's love to you and to recollect that it is precisely the same love wherewith He loves His Son, that the love wherewith Thou hast loved me may be in them. O wonder of wonders, I feel more inclined to sit down and meditate upon it than to stand up and talk about it. The love wherewith He loved His Son, such is His love to all His chosen ones. Can you believe it? that you should be the object of God's delight, even as Christ is, because you are in Christ. That you should be the object of the Father's love as truly as Christ is, because He sees you to be part and parcel of the mystical body of His beloved Son. Do not tell me that God the Father does not love you as well as He does Christ. The point can be settled by the grandest matter of fact that ever was. And so he's going to give his reason, you know, don't try to tell me that the father doesn't love you the same way he loves his son. I can prove to you that he does. And here he's going to do that. When there was a choice between Christ and his people, which of the two should die, the father freely delivered up his own son that we might live through him. So what's the greatest, what's the only reason you need for you to know that the father loves you the same way he loves his son, the way that you know is by looking at the cross. When, the, when God had to make a choice, who was going to die, these sinful people or my son, he chose his son. He chose to send his son, to let his son die. Oh, what a meeting there must have been of the seas of love that day when God's great love to us came rolling in like a glorious spring tide and his love to his son came rolling in at the same time. If they had met and come into collision, we cannot imagine the results. But when they both took to rolling together in one mighty torrent, what a stream of love was there. The Lord Jesus sank that we might swim. He sank that we might rise. And now we are borne onward forever by the mighty sweep of infinite love into an everlasting blessedness which tongues and lips can never fully set forth. And then he ends with this. Oh, be ravished. With this, 
be carried away with it. Be in ecstasy at love so amazing, so divine. The Father loves you even as He loves His Son. After the same manner in sort, He loves all His redeemed. So Christians are the called. Christians are beloved. And then finally, Christians are those who are kept, Jude says. Kept. Not only called and beloved, but also kept. And the Lord is keeping you throughout your wanderings in the wilderness of this world. First Peter 1.5, he says, Christians are those who are kept by the power of God through faith. In the Old Testament, Aaron was commanded, in number 6, he was commanded to bless the people. He said, Oh, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. And then back here in Jude, in Jude 24, a lot of you probably know this verse by heart. It's kind of one of those really good memory verses. Jude 24, he says this, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So he begins his letter with this idea of being kept. He ends his letter with this thing of keeping you from stumbling. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Keep you from stumbling. And I say to you this morning, each of you who are believers... The only way that you're ever going to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, is if God keeps you. That's the only way. It's the only way it's going to happen. There isn't a single believer here this morning. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how spiritually strong you are. There's nobody here this morning who's going to make it unless God keeps them. It's the only way. I mean, think of Peter here. In the past few weeks, I've just really been struck by this. Jesus told Peter ahead of time that he was going to be facing this temptation. He told him ahead of time. Even though he knew it ahead of time, he still couldn't keep from denying the Lord. Isn't that incredible? He told him about it. I mean, you would think if God told you ahead of time that you're going to be facing this exact thing, you might think you'd probably be able to keep yourself from it. didn't happen. Even though he knew of it ahead of time, he couldn't keep himself from it. The only reason... He came out on the other side of that temptation was because Christ prayed for him. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. In other words, what happened? Christ kept him. He kept him. That's the only reason. And he does the same for all of his people. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will lose nothing of what the Father has given him. Not one will be lost. Even if he has to leave 99 of them to go find the one, he's going to do that. Not, Not a single one will be lost. And then later on here in John 10, another encouragement. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
a Christian is kept in the hand of Jesus and in the hand of the Father. He's kept in both. We sang that song this morning. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. That's John 10 right there. Can never pluck me from His hand. Well, we talked earlier about the, the privilege of being called and how we have the responsibility as Christians to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called and also to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us. And there is walking to do in the Christian life. There's running to do in the Christian life. But in those verses, Paul talks about walking, living the Christian life, walking in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. But you soon find out, you set out on this, on this path and you start walking as a Christian and you soon find out that it's actually God who is carrying you while you walk. And let's look at this in Deuteronomy 1. We're talking about being kept here. And yet we have the responsibility to walk in the Christian life. But notice what it says here in Deuteronomy 1. Moses is talking to the people of Israel here. Deuteronomy 1.30 The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight on your behalf just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Now notice that here. What's, he, what's it saying? It's saying as you're walking, as you're walking, God is carrying you. At the very same time that you're walking, God is actually carrying you. He's keeping you. All the way to the finish line, He's keeping you. He promises to never leave His people, to never forsake His people until they're safe at home. You see that? You, you have to walk in the Christian life. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And yet, you start walking along and all of a sudden you realize, you know, the only reason I'm making it is because God's carrying me. At the very same time that I'm walking, God is carrying. That's what it says here. The Lord your God carried you while, he says, the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked. You walk, God carries And then one final thing here, back to Jude. Sorry we're flipping around a lot, but Jude 1. I should say Jude verse 1. Back in Jude. <clears throat> Notice here that Jude does not say just that we're kept. That's not what he says. But he says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. And I want to expand on this just a little bit here in closing. You'll remember way back there in Genesis chapter 12, God made several promises to Abraham. And one thing that was promised to Abraham was a people who would number like the stars of heaven and like the sand of the seashore. That was promised to Abraham. Pure promise. God just says, I'm going to do this. A people 
who number like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. But we find out when we come to the New Testament that these promises made to Abraham are a lot deeper than what they appear to be back in Genesis 12. And we find out in Galatians 3, and we won't look at this, but we find out in Galatians 3 that those promises that were made to Abraham were not ultimately made just to Abraham. But God actually made those promises to Christ himself. And that's incredible. God made those promises to Christ himself. In other words, think of this. God the Father promised his son that he would have a people for his own possession. That's what he was doing there. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to make your people like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the seashore. But all that's doing there is telling us of a deeper reality about this promise that God made to his own son about having a people for his own possession. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to redeem, to purchase this chosen people for himself. And this is why we have the Lord Jesus. He says things like this. We read it a little bit ago here in John 6. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. See, the father gave a people to his son to redeem. And then later he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So Christ was given a specific people to redeem for himself, a specific people to become his own possession. The hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life He died. And so he sheds his blood to purchase a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He purchases a people that had been promised to him from the foundations of the world. This people had been promised to Christ. And then he purchases these people, pays for their sins in full. And then down through history, one by one, God starts calling these people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And they join the church and they become part of the church. And they're kept, we read about that already, they're kept by the power of God until that day when the marriage of the Lamb will come. In Revelation 19.7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, or His wife, has made herself ready. You see, Jesus will have His bride. He will receive the full reward of His sufferings. Not one will be missing on that day. Not one will be missing from the wedding because every Christian, again, God calls them and He keeps them. And who does He keep them for? He keeps them for His Son. He keeps them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ had been promised these people for His own possession and God calls them and He keeps them and Christ will not lose one. Not one will be missing from that wedding. So again, I say to you, God is keeping His children, but He's not keeping us just for heaven, you know, in some kind of broad, abstract kind of way, but He's keeping us specifically for His Son, that we might be married to Him for all eternity. And I love, you know, going back to that New English translation, I love the way that's worded, although I don't think it's probably real accurate, but I think it's a good paraphrase of Jude 1 there. To those who are the called, wrapped in the love of God the Father kept for Jesus Christ. It's almost like God saves a person and He wraps them up and then gives them as a present to His Son. Here's a wedding present for you. Wrapped in the love of God. Kept for Jesus Christ. Given as a gift on that day. 
Again, He's keeping us specifically for His Son, that we might be married to Him, that we might look upon His face, that we might know His love in a way that is above and beyond all that we can ask or think. And so I would ask you this morning, would heaven be heaven to you if Christ were not there? And this is a searching kind of question, isn't it? Would heaven be heaven to you if Christ were not there? And every true Christian answers, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Samuel Rutherford said, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Not just some of it, not just part of it, not just most of it. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Jesus is all the glory of that day. And the Christian, the true Christian, will be satisfied with nothing less than that marriage to Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. Not just heaven, whatever that's going to be and all that that's going to entail, but we want to know Christ. We want to be with Him. So in conclusion then this morning, if you're a Christian here, who are you? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you could say that you're a former child of wrath, an enemy of God who has been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Also, you've been wrapped up in the love of God the Father, beloved of God the Father. And you're being kept throughout your time in this world, kept not just for heaven, but kept for Jesus Christ, kept for Him, given to Him to be a member of His bride, part of His wedding gift, the bride of Christ. So, who are you as a Christian? You're called, you're beloved, and you're kept. Three titles that you wear this morning. And I would just say to you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you know, like Bob told that guy, why not? I mean, think of the blessings here of being a Christian. Why would you not want to be a Christian? What else, what can be better than being a Christian? Christ is worthy. And not only is Christ worthy, but the blessings that you receive. What can be greater than being called of God? What can be greater than being beloved of God? What can be greater than being kept by God for a gift for His Son? What can be greater than that? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near.